Okay, guys, great to be with you today. Praise the Lord. Let's see, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to get there eventually. Uh, I just want to open up my Bible there. Okay, so I thought what we would do today, if you guys don't mind, is um, I thought what we would do is just do a little bit of review of covenant theology uh, since we've been going through that and since we are getting ready to, Lord willing, next week jump right into uh, what is known as the covenant of grace. I thought that we would just go back a little bit and talk about uh, some of the distinctions that we've already looked at and sort of review because I thought, you know, covenant theology is such a massive uh, undertaking that we really need to uh, solidify some of these things in our minds. And, and I, I just want everybody as much as, as possible to be clear uh, in your minds, and I want everyone to grasp it and to benefit from it, to understand it, and to see how it affects our theology. Uh, without question, um, covenant theology is a particular theology. It is distinct. Uh, from other theological uh, camps. I know right now, for example, um, John MacArthur is teaching through the covenants, and he is sort of tying together and contrasting and, and, and going through different covenants and, and giving you know his exposition of that. But we know that from a dispensational perspective, his ideas of covenant theology are going to be a lot different than ours, you know, or than mine. Maybe you don't want to identify with me yet, but uh, it's going to be a lot different than where I'm coming from in terms of covenant theology. You know, so, uh, for example, his, his, um, you know, when he begins teaching covenant theology, he begins, I think he began at the Abrahamic level, but so for him, uh, he won't even deal with the first three covenants that we're looking at here. Uh, he will not uh, recognize a covenant of redemption or a covenant of works or a covenant of grace. Uh, he would call those extra biblical covenants that are not in the Bible, and so he wouldn't even, he wouldn't even... Uh, uh, really go there. Maybe he'll talk about it. But I don't think so. But uh, I, I think what's going on is that John MacArthur is noticing that there is a revival, if I can use that word, of Reformed theology today, and that many people that are becoming Reformed are kind of awakening to covenantal thought. And so I think he's recognizing, you know, I better say something about this because everybody is studying covenant theology, it seems, you know, and he's right. It's, it's everywhere, and it's growing uh, uh, tremendously uh, throughout the church right now. I, I, I mean, maybe I'm not the right person to say this, but I mean, ever since I've been a Christian, since 96, um, I remember in the 90s, late 90s, uh, the resurgence in Reformed theology just because of the influence of R.C. Sproul and John Piper, especially right around the 2000-year uh, the you know 2000 2001 right around those years there was just an explosion i mean i remember you know being so excited john piper's coming to biola and john piper is going to be speaking at azusa pacific and i mean it was just pandemonium it was packed out you know and everybody it just seemed like everyone was just uh, becoming a Calvinism just to get to the quick, you know what I mean? And uh, just like people were just enthralled by someone, you know, that, that God rose up, namely Piper, and uh, and sort of just, you know, he rose up and kind of emerged above what was going on in evangelicalism at that time and began to passionately proclaim the sovereignty of God, something that was like a shock to everybody's system, you know, because, um, you know, prior to that, I mean, especially in the 80s, I think what exploded in the 80s was really the introduction of a non-denominational type of church, kind of, a, you know, that type of thing. Calvary Chapel emerged on the scene in the 60s and 70s, uh, became a huge uh, influence in the world. I think now they have about 40,000 churches, um, so Calvary Chapel is a big deal. Uh, but things like that, also the, the, the Pentecostal wing of the church, uh, the Assemblies of God, uh, and all the holiness tabernacles and all that, you know. Uh, but a lot of those folks reject Reformed theology. And so here was John Piper, you know, sort of, if, if R.C. Sproul was like the brains, you know, John Piper was like the fuel, you know, he was like the heat, the heart, you know. And uh, even though Piper's actually a bigger scholar than R.C. Sproul, actually, I think he's actually a more academic scholar than Sproul ever became, 
he got a PhD from the University of Munich. So he was, matter of fact, he was reading uh, uh, John Piper's book on Romans 9 called The Justification of God, uh, where he just exegetes Romans 9 at the deepest possible level. It's like, if you don't know Greek and Hebrew, it's really hard to interact with that book. But it was that book and a couple others that really conspired against me to... Uh, you know, to uh, embrace the doctrines of grace. But, you know, I, I praise God for all of it, you know, because the influence of that led me back to uh, Jonathan Edwards, the Puritans, Reformed theology, ultimately John Calvin, and really an understanding of church history and how, you know, uh, contrary to popular belief in Southern California, Christianity did not begin in the 60s in the tent with Chuck Smith. You know, <laughs> or with Billy Graham in the 40s and 50s, you know, actually Christianity began a long time ago. <laughs> you know, there's a, a lengthy theological tradition of Christendom that goes all the way back, you know, to the, to the earliest uh, centuries of, the, of, of after the, the, the time of the Bible and probably reaching its first climax in church history with Augustine. And Augustine was probably the most prolific theologian in the church in the fourth century. Um, and then after that, if you know anything about church history, you know that after the fourth century, the church really went into some really tumultuous times uh, eventually. And no, nobody knows specifically when, but somewhere around the seventh century, so like 600s, all the way up to the dawn of the Reformation. So you're talking about 14th century, something like that. It, it really became what was known the Dark Ages, Right where you really see very little flickers of, of of light of truth, so you have very few individuals throughout your. If somebody were to tell you, name a, a pillar of church history between six hundred to thirteen hundred. You know, we we kind of grope to figure out who that was, because they were very small pockets. You know, maybe Gottschalk. I mean, I think Gottschalk was a. Uh, um, was a, a Augustinian type of uh, guy. He also believed in the sovereignty of God. Then you had other guys, you know, maybe like the Waldensians, and then prior to the Reformation, you had, you know, Tyndale and Wycliffe and guys like that paving the way for, um, for the Reformation. But it wasn't until the Reformation that really was, you know, like Calvin says, you know, after darkness, light. Right, and I don't know how that Latin phrase goes, but it's really cool, right? Post terimus lux or something like that. Yeah. So after darkness, light, because Calvin was saying that the church had been in a st- in a in an era of darkness for so long, until of course the the word of God finally became uh, became translated and accessible for the common man, and that changed everything. Yes, ma'am. Oh, absolutely. So the Catholic Church, you know, existed all the way in the time of Augustine, but not in its such a, such a perverted uh, state, right? There's a big debate as to when um, did the Catholic Church become the Catholic Church as we know it now, with the Pope and the Bishop and the Magistry and the and the sacraments and and, and everything that it has today, all the traditions and all of that. Uh, we don't know. I mean, some people. I mean, I think Lorraine Botner tries to locate you know, the the papacy around the 7th century and things like that. So I, it's hard. Mariolatry and all of that, that arose, you know, that came later. But, yeah. Who John Huss fall in the middle of all that? John Huss? Uh, Jon Hus? His goose got cooked, right? Yeah, John Huss. Uh, well, he was, uh, John Huss was an early reformer, so he's coming in right around the time of Calvin. Uh, yeah, something like that, yeah. It's not what we're supposed to be talking about today, but I'm just kind of ad living right now. Yeah, you know, theologically what happened was that during the time of Augustine, there was another prominent theologian during that time by the name of Pelagius. And these kind of two began, they kind of became two different representatives of two different theologies, which really had to do with the nature of man. Uh, So their fundamental controversy was anthropology, right? Specifically dealing with the nature of the will, 
whereas Pelagius believed that man uh, you know, was uh, born upright and did not have a sinful nature until after he sinned and therefore still retained free will and all of those kinds of things. Well, that theology ended up getting picked up by uh, the Roman Catholic scholastics like um, uh, Thomas Aquinas and Erasmus and people like that, and that was kind of the the controversy that erupted between the reformers and the Catholic Church. It always had to do with the nature of the will, you know. That's why, you know, Luther wrote on the bondage of the will. And he said this is the chief controversy between Rome and the reformers. It's not sola fide. It's not justification by faith alone. It is not predestination. It is the nature of the will of man. Who is man after the fall? And, you know, if you guys want, out in the bookstore, I love saying that, the bookstore. I know it's a table, but it's okay. Yeah, yeah, come on. It's right. Yeah, it's a license, man. Come on. But out in the bookstore, we have a really important, I think, do we have that? It's by Justo Gonzalez. It's the history of Christian thought. Is that out there? That's fantastic. So anyway, what we're supposed to be talking about today is is kind of an overview of covenant theology. So maybe we can start making a mess up here and uh, kind of seeing our way through it. The brown one works? Okay, let me. Yeah, 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 that's right. So just an overview uh, of covenant theology so far. And the first covenant that we talked about, of course, was the covenant of redemption, right? And the covenant of redemption is, is, is what? You know, we talked about the Trinity, of course, because the covenant of redemption is within the Trinity. It's a pre-temporal covenant, meaning that it's, it's a covenant that took place prior to time in the realm of eternity. It is between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, just to be fair, since you guys are going to go out and research all this stuff, right? But some theologians debate as to whether the, the Spirit actually played a covenantal role uh, in the covenant of redemption, I think he did. So that's where I'm. That's where I side. Uh, so, like, if you go out to the bookstore and you pick up uh, J.B. Fesco's uh, book on the covenant of redemption, that that's his position, and that's the position of a lot of other guys. But in the covenant of redemption, it, it really important is the the pact between Father and Son, right? Where Father and Son both make various right commitments. And you see those commitments, so let's talk some, you see the commitments, right, between father and son uh, in places like John 17, 1 through 5. That would be a really important place where you kind of see that. By the way, as you think about Christ in covenant with God, somebody read for us um, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Jonathan, you got that? Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Let me just write that up there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, okay? And the reason why is because um, what I would argue is that, let me give you another couple verses here, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, also Psalm uh, 89, verses 1 through uh, 4, I believe it is, uh, where God makes it very explicit that uh, he made a covenant with his servant David, right? And so we'll, we'll get to this, but so you got that? Yeah, go ahead. That's right. Until the seed come, to whom to whom the promise has been had been made. We had a, a dispensational family here once, and if you are, no offense, but. Uh, we had a dispensational family once. He sat up here scratching his head. He's just struggling so hard with it. He's just like, I don't understand like what you're saying here. <laughs> Why can't the seed just be Abraham? It can't be Abraham. Read it again, <laughs> right? It says the seed who is to come. Well, that's not that's not Abraham to come in the Abrahamic covenant. Right, that's the seed that he already talked about in verse sixteen and seventeen, which is Christ. And so, what's remarkable there is who was the promise made to? Now you grapple with that. What is Paul saying there? That, and this is why I put Psalm two. Uh, what is Psalm two seven about? Don't look. No, I'm joking. You can look all you want. Our pastor is keeping us from the Bible. 
<laughs> I will surely go to the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What is that talking about, Chris? In the context. The Lord establishing his son as king. What, yeah. In, in the context of what, am I off? Am I, um, no, it's not. Problems? That's why you should be in here instead of uh, anyway. I know people got kids and they're dealing with all that, but so what's the context? He's establishing, installing his king, making his son king. What covenant is he talking about? Well, there in the historical context. What is it? What's that? Louder. There you go. David. Yeah. So it's the covenant of David. Right? Uh, David wrote this, and he's reflecting that this is God making a decree to make his son the king. And this was a title for the Davidic king, and every Davidic king after David was, was, was identified as God's son. Okay? That's what it means. So, like, when they would go through the ceremony and be ordained as king, right, they would read various psalms, and commentators would say that Psalm 2 was read at the coronation of kings at their installation to call them son, like son of God, you know? And of course, that was all just a prelude to, you know, Jesus, you know, the, the, the true son of God. But the reason I point this out is because what I'm saying is that, like, what, what covenant is Galatians 3.19? What was that talking about? That's right, Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant. What was Psalm 2 talking about? That's right. So the Davidic covenant. Um, And then Psalm 89, you have that repeated over and over and over, especially verses 1 through 3, where, you know, God says that he has made a covenant with my servant, David. What happened? Oh, because she's talking. Oh, I don't. It doesn't bother me. Um, But if it bothers others. Yeah, that's not theology. What is that? Yeah, that's right. So what do we make of this, you guys, that all of these, uh, um, all of these uh, covenantal administrations in some way have some kind of connection to Christ? It's pretty conclusive, right? Yes, sir. Correct. So what we're saying is that, that that's, I think you're correct. Let me see if you agree with me now. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that when we see Christ mentioned in connection with, like in these scriptures, mentioned in connection with these kind of covenants, what we're seeing is that it ultimately reflects the covenantal relationship that God has with his son, which is rooted in the covenant of redemption. You see what I'm saying? So these just kind of reflect that. That reality, yeah, that's right. Until at last we reach the consummation of all of this in the new covenant, where Jesus is in covenant with uh, his Father and with his people. You know what I mean? Yeah, these. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is like on a typical level, right? Typologically, that's what's being reflected there. So, like, especially like Davidic is so clear, right? David is a type of the covenant relationship that God has with his son. And that's why David is given the title as son. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, and even when you look at um, Luke chapter 1, when you look at, um, let's just look there real quick, right? So, the, the people in the Bible, I mean, they, they fully understood that all of these covenant promises... Right, all these covenant promises were ultimately rooted in Christ. So Luke chapter 1, look at Mary, the, uh, the amazing covenant theologian that she was. Let that, let that be an incentive for you ladies. Uh, you know, sometimes I think we get this, you know, this sort of uh, superficial view of Mary. There's this little girl, you know, she's got this baby, right? She's kind of this innocent little girl that, you know what I mean, poor Mary, you know what I mean? Well, okay, maybe poor Mary, but, you know, 
um, she was uh, serious about the Word of God. I mean, just look at her prayer life. Her prayer was a deep doxological prayer, deep theology. She understood biblical prophecy. She understood the Abrahamic covenant, for example, because he says, you know, he has, look at verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And the same idea is picked up in 67. Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited us, accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. Look at that. So he's saying that with the arrival and the, uh, with the, the arrival of Christ, the advent of Christ, and all of the things that were transpiring, what was being fulfilled is God's covenant oaths in the past. You know? That's why if you look at, uh, for example, just a quick insight here, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, um, and, and you may even have a footnote here, uh, let's see here. Um, yeah, but it says here in verse 1, inasmuch as we have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Th- that word accomplished among us literally can be translated fulfilled. So that's why theologians would say that the time of Christ is the time of fulfillment, right? It is, the t- it is time to fulfill the Davidic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, you know, the, the, the everything. It's time to fulfill all the biblical covenants and to sum up, like Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, to sum up all things in Christ. You see? Really remarkable. Um, now, in terms of the covenant of redemption, what is being promised to the Son? Anyone want to take a stab at it? What is being promised to the Son in the covenant of redemption? A people? A holy nation? Any, any, any way we can wrap those all together? Huh? Kingdom. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking about in Israel, um, making our theological theme for the trip, the kingdom of God, and, and taking time at the hotels uh, to teach on the kingdom of God. Wouldn't that be great? Mm. Can you think about it? I mean, there we are, you know, in the typological kingdom land, teaching on the kingdom of God. It just makes me... You know, just makes me really excited about it. But um, so the kingdom, that's right. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And we could, again, we could even say this is reflected in passages like this. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 28. Everybody there? Right, let me write this down. Luke 22, 28 through, uh, let's go to 30. Because it's so marvelous, right? Because we learn several things, right? We learn several things here, right? Look at verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. So what's the context? Trial. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you, okay? And, and, and look at what the purpose of the kingdom is, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. So what I'm saying is that right there, you kind of have like the dual estates of Christ, right? You have Christ, in order for him to obtain his kingdom, he must go through trial. He calls it my trials, right? So he has to go through suffering in order to obtain the kingdom. And when he obtains the kingdom through suffering, guess what he does according to uh, Isaiah 53, verse 12. What does he do? He divides the spoil, the booty with the strong, right? So that's what he's talking about here in verse 30 when he says, you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's absolutely remarkable. Yes, sir? And as a result of all of these 
Yeah, and it says right after that that he di- that he was obedient to the point of death, and then what does it say? Therefore, God highly exalted him. That's exactly right, and then bestowed on him. So that's exactly right. So on on payment of his suffering, God exalts him. You know what I mean? And gives him the name, and then he shares his kingdom with his people. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about right there. And remember, we pointed this out, as does Fesco in his book, where it says, just as my father has granted me a kingdom, that Greek word there, granted, is the root word for covenant. So Jesus is not just talking about some haphazard decision. Oh, God just decided to just give me a kingdom. No, no, no. It's a formal commitment by the Father to covenant to the Son a kingdom. That's amazing. So you're saying, yeah. Yeah, the root word there is from diatheke, which is where we get the word covenant, which is really interesting, right? <laughs> like, why would he use that word? You know, so, and in the context, what's the context? Well, the context is the Lord's Supper, where he just inaugurated the new covenant. And now he's saying, right, that he's going to covenant to us a kingdom. See? And so this is, this is, I believe, this is what is promised in the covenant of redemption, is that in the covenant of redemption in eternity, even as John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, that's where, in, in, uh, that's where we get into the eternal realm, Right, that that's where the Father and the Son made this agreement. Jesus speaking out loud, almost right in his prayer, because we get to hear his prayer and what he's the, the the intercourse that he's having with his Father, the communion, you know, this open soliloquy that we get to peer into and listen, right, where he is talking to the Father and saying, "I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do." And what I'm saying is this: that work is not just obey the Ten Commandments. That work is all of the redemptive work of Christ. Everything. It's, it's, it, where, in, where does in the Ten Commandments does it say be incarnate? <laughs> right? Or in God's law. Right? But in fulfillment of God's law, that's part of it. But he also had to fulfill the mission that God sent him to go do. Right? Which was part of it, which was to live a perfect life by obeying God's law perfectly. But it's more than that. It's to be born, it's to become incarnate, it's to suffer, it's to die, it's to be buried, and then to be raised again. All of the work of Christ resulted in the impartation or the inheritance of the kingdom and our inheritance of the kingdom. You see what I'm saying? So that's why, like in the, what is it? Uh, I think it's in Romans chapter 8, I think, right? Verse 17 or something like that, where we are co-heirs with Christ. See, it all boils down to this. We are co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom that God gave him in eternity and that we have now become partakers of. You see? It really kind of informs everything, right? Um, Any questions about this? Any questions? So the kingdom of God, more and more, if you were to put a gun to my head, and please don't, and say, <laughs> what, come on, so, <laughs> okay, we'll stop right there. <laughs> what is the Bible about? Okay, you can extrapolate that. Well, the Bible is about the redemptive story of the Son of God coming to die on the cross on behalf of his people that were covenanted to him by the Father. You know, we can give this, you know, bavink paragraph definition. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or you could say the kingdom of, uh, the, the, the Bible is about the kingdom of God. Like, if I could just give you one word or one phrase or one idea, the Bible is about the kingdom. (laughs) And how do you know that for certain? Because that's how the Bible ends, right? And this is where Reformed theologians, they would say, if you want to understand the Bible, start at the end. Doesn't that make so much sense, though? It's kind of like, if you want to know what that movie's about, just watch the last part. Watch the, watch the final scene, and you'll know. And then you're going to go back and watch that movie, and you're like, ah, oh, that's why he's doing this. Oh, that's why they did That's why they said that. That's why this happened, right? Because everything is going to this heavenly or supernal kingdom of God, right? Um, any questions about that? Isn't that marvelous, though? I mean, to me, it's just, it's just really, really marvelous. It's um, really transform your your view of scripture. Um, I forgot who I was listening to. I was listening to something. 
teaching or lecture or something where they're talking about, you know, it's like you think of a good movie that you know of, okay, whatever it is, okay, maybe you don't need to shout it out, but right, so, so, so think of that really good movie that you've always liked, that classic, no matter how many times you watch it, it's classic and you'll watch it again, even though you already know everything about the movie, you can quote every line of the movie, you know, like I like the movie, um, oh man, this is risky, right, I'll give you an easy one. Well, you know, like um, like Western movies, I think my only one of my only Western movies that I really like is like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. With, uh, you know, I just like the music and just the nostalgia of it, you know, Tuco and all that, you know, anyway. But I've seen the movie a hundred times, maybe maybe not, maybe a hundred times, so no. <laughs> but it's like no matter how many times I watch that, that scene with Clint Eastwood and that guy and that is still classic. No matter how many times I watch it, I can listen to the line over and over and over, and it still amazes me. It still makes me laugh, you know? Um, uh, so some movies, they still make you laugh. Maybe they still make you cry. Maybe they still, you, ju- you just can still appreciate, even though you know the dramatic interest that is coming, you still appreciate it. And that's what it is about the Bible, is that no matter how many times you, bu- you read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you know how the story ends. You know that in the end, we will be in tabernacle fellowship with God in his kingdom forever drinking from the river of God's delights. And no matter how many times you read those two chapters, you still will go back to the Bible and still read about the incarnation and about, you know, we've been studying Mark Jones, right? And he talks about like Jesus' development, his growth as as a child, right? We're still fascinated by that. Even though that's a scene we totally know already. But, and I would say the Bible above all other stories that have ever been given has the capacity to capture our attention by its drama, you know, and it's beautiful. So anyway, it's just, it's beautiful. Questions, comments? Can anybody relate to what I'm saying? Okay, good. Man, waste my time up here. Okay, what about the next covenant? Covenant of works. Let's, uh, let's sort of, you really can't erase this stuff because this all goes together, Right? But as we look at the next very important covenant administration, like the covenant of works, right? turn to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, there we saw um, and what, so we'll be in Genesis here for a little bit, but what, what the covenant of works helps us to do is it helps us to see that, let me write this down here, creation Creation itself is covenantal, right? It is covenantal. Creation itself is covenantal. So help me out. How do we know that? Just don't, without going to the covenant of works. What in Genesis 1 and 2, let's say for example, tells us this is covenantal? Anything? (laughs) Anyone? Well, I'm saying even before that, so even before the official covenant of works, right? Even before that, which we're saying this is where, Genesis 2, 15 to 17, right? So even before that, what in the, pr- in the Genesis, what's called the Genesis prologue, what, is the, what does the word prologue mean? Introduction, right? So in the Genesis prologue, in the introduction to the book of Genesis and really to the whole Bible, what tips us off that that creation is a covenantal thing? Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't even think about that one. That one's really good. That he blessed them, right, is, is, is going to become very, very important later because part of being in covenant with God is that he blesses you, right? Where's, what's the most prominent passage in the Old Testament that teaches us that? Can you think of it? I actually think of the multiple times where Jacob blesses his uh, okay. children. And okay. Abraham. Can you think of a covenant where this happens? The Abrahamic covenant? Where he says, 
I'll make you a blessing, right? I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. Any other covenant that reminds us of the blessing of God being covenantal? Yes, sir. Yeah. That's certainly a evidence of his blessing, right? The evidence of his blessing is that he will multiply them. But I'm thinking of the old covenant, right? Where you have blessings and cursings, right? So, uh, yeah, that's right. Well, that's what I mean. The old covenant at Sinai, right? When, when God ratified the old covenant with Moses and the children of Israel, Moses being the mediator, children of Israel being the parties of the covenant, right? And, and, and that old covenant, he told them, Right? Where do I write this down? He told them in two very specific places, Leviticus 26, and this is something you should memorize, Deuteronomy 28. Remember those two chapters because there are the blessing. What happened? Oh, the Israel- oh, they go there all the time? So the Lord blessed the Israelite movement, huh? Oh, okay. So, no, uh, I was with uh, James White his last t- night that he was here, and we were talking about the Hebrew Israelites. And he texts a guy named Vocab, because I asked, I asked James, how big is this Israelite movement? I don't even know. I don't know anything about it, first of all. Second of all, I asked him in the car when we were driving, just give me everything. Just give me the whole rundown right now. What's the whole Israelite movement? So he just starts rattling off all these things. And then I asked him, how big is it? How many people are in the Israelite movement? And he texts Vocab. And, he sa- and this guy, Vocab, which I'm still trying to get over the idea that his name is Vocab, but he texts Vocab, and he says it's anywhere from 45,000 to 500,000. I was like, what? I'm like, How do- wait a minute. That's an that's a interesting margin of error there. <laughs> you know, I'm like, it cannot be that big. Is it? I think it's bigger. What? so interesting we'll have to do a Sunday school class on it you can teach it (laughs) (laughs) that's right tag team okay so let me give you guys some because our time is quickly waning here let me give you guys some reasons why I would say that that just you know even as we're because you know let's be honest covenant of works one of the arguments against like somebody like MacArthur uh, would say the reason why he would never speak of that is because the word covenant is not in it's not in Genesis uh, one through three, uh, it's not in Genesis uh, chapter two with with the covenant of works, and it's not in Genesis chapter three what we would call the covenant of rede- uh, covenant of grace. So what gives? I mean, if the Hebrew word berit covenant is not there, and in the Greek Septuagint diatheke that word for covenant that's not there either. So how what right do we have to say that you know the Genesis prologue is essentially covenantal in nature you know i i like the i like the insight about the blessing you know god's blessing is a covenantal theme in the bible absolutely but everything i would say his also his um you know his uh creating man in his image i think is a covenantal idea i think that man that that means that man was to be god's ultimate representative just like christ um, and that created in God's image means that God put his image into his temple, um, which was a customary idea back in the ancient Near Eastern history that a king would create a temple and then put his image inside of it, and along with the image would go his covenant law. I mean, there's all kinds of insights from ancient Near Eastern history that substantiates that. But uh, But yeah, yeah, and then, you know, let's see. Again, the, the language of be fruitful and multiply, absolutely. What happens to the language of be fruitful and multiply is that that does become, uh, here, turn to Deuteronomy, just to see it, I think, right? Deuteronomy chapter 30, as we are clearly in covenantal territory, right? 
um, this is a huge one. We're going to look really in-depth at this passage when we get to the Mosaic Covenant because it's really important. Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 15. I see, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. I mean, does, does not that sound exactly like what Adam was put into, right? God set in front of him with this arboreal imagery, the trees. He set in front of him the prospect of life or death. And that's exactly what he told him, right? He says, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, even as Adam was told in Genesis chapter two, to keep God's commands, right? He commanded the man, it says, right? And his statutes and, and his judgments that you may live and multiply. You see that? There's that word again, right? That you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you. There's Chris's insight in the land where you are entering to possess it. And so, um, yeah, there's so many things. I mean, forget the fact that, you know, uh, the promised land, you know, in Jerusalem, later on the prophets equate with Eden, right? That, that God is going to make Jerusalem that at one point, because it had been ransacked by the Babylonians and had been rendered desolate, he said one day, you know, God promised, I'm going to make your waste places like Eden. You know what I'm saying? So returning Jerusalem to an Edenic uh, uh, imagery, I think, is a totally a covenantal idea because by then the people of God are in covenant. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, that's exactly what Eve did. That's exactly what Eve did. She turned away. She disobeyed. She was drawn to worship and serve another god, namely the serpent, right? The anti-lord, the one who stands behind all idolatry, <laughs> right? And, the, and the, what happened there, I think, is that she, in a sense, entered into an informal covenant with him instead. And Satan is very, very crafty, as it says there, right? And his craftiness was a lot more than just just to get the man and the woman to disobey. What I would say is that what Satan was doing is he was trying to circumvent and he was trying to short-circuit the promise of God's kingdom to Adam. He knew if I can just get, if I can disqualify Adam from eating of the tree of life, then God's kingdom will not be realized. And so what happens is exactly that, right? But little did he know that God was preparing to send a second Adam, last Adam, who will give us access to the tree of life. So all kinds of things. Also, I made a big deal out of this in my sermon at the conference. I don't know if you were listening, but the, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a fun time. But the Sabbath, the Sabbath as a covenantal sign, right? The Sabbath, uh, uh, you guys talked, okay, so you guys were there. Who was there? You said it was awesome? Yeah. So what did I say about the Sabbath at the conference? Go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so not fair. <laughs> you remember anything? Heaven and Sabbath rest. Do we have a verse for that? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, anyone? Hebrews, four. Hebrews. Oh, yeah. Wow. There you go. Very good. Hebrews 4.9. That's, that's what I would say. Anyway. Well, really, all the way verses 3 all the way to 9. But yes. Good. Yeah, that's great. That's exactly right. What were you going to say, yeah. Jonathan? Yeah. 
Right. And uh, Meredith Klein points out that the Sabbath was a symbol of what Adam was to attain to. That Adam was given an inspiration to rest like God one day. And that he, even though he was created good and on this earth, his, his essential character and the, and the nature of his existence was depicted by work, right? That he was to tend and till and keep the garden, right, while God rested. So in a sense, giving him a goal to strive after is to somehow, how does one go from the realm of work to the realm of rest, you know, like God, Right. And so and now we know, you know, amazingly, because even in Hebrews, it says, you know, that if we've trusted in Christ, we have ceased from our work. Right. And we rest in him. You know, so um, any questions, comments about that? There's so much. Um, do we have time for the components of the covenant of works? Yes, ma'am. Because this are the this is where um, like a covenantal very explicitly because it's the old covenant where blessings and cursings are set forth, right? And this is where they're, they're detailed, you know? Um, is Deuteronomy, is it? I'm just trying to remember if it goes beyond 28. Does it go beyond 28 or does it end at 28? Yeah, 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 it's just 28. It's such a long chapter. I mean, it's 68 verses. And detailed um, blessings and curses. Beginning in verse 15, that's where he begins the consequence of disobedience. And guess what? Guess what it is, though, guys? Here's another thing you can write down. <laughs> Here's another thing is that when you go from, from uh, Deuteronomy uh, 28, 15, and you start reading on, what that becomes is actually prophetic of what happens to Israel in the Babylonian captivity. This actually becomes a prophecy almost of what will happen. And guess what? When you go in and you read the prophets, exactly what happened to them is exactly what Deuteronomy said would happen to them. It's amazing. Yeah, Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifteen and following, starting there. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, it's all this blessing, 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 you know, for obedience. Um, so the covenant of works tells us that Adam, above many other things, is that, okay, creation, Adam, and then we, as we think of Adam, what does Adam introduce us to? Well, a lot of things, you guys. I mean, the reason why Adam is so important is because Adam uh, speaks of the potential, of the potential that exists within the covenant of works, namely, life eternal, right? Symbolized by what? A tree. Of life. My writing is so bad. Joseph Urban goes, Yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> he goes, Why don't you write your sermons? I'm like, I can't write. Look at my writing. He's like, Oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> and his is not pretty. You know what I mean? Like, mine's horrendous. <laughs> I'm all messed up. I, you guys should sometimes I'll write in Greek and while I'm writing. Awful, awful. And I pulled out my non-greeter, non-reader's Greek Bible because I'm making a comeback. Y'all better watch out. <sighs> making a comeback to... Tw- what I'm saying is that 2018, I really want to immerse myself in the Greek New Testament. So uh, I'm going to pick days out of the week where I only read my Greek Bible. But till then, we shall talk about the potential of Adam for eternal life. <laughs> and what else was I going to say? Uh, the prospect of Adam. Oh, yes. And then the covenant of works also shows us what? It also introduces us to the works principle that governs uh, other aspects of Scripture, right? The works principle is important because it tells us, brothers and sisters, that heaven, the kingdom, we go back to the kingdom, that the kingdom must be earned. The kingdom has to be earned. You have to earn it. Adam had to earn the kingdom. He had to obey perfectly. And if he obeyed perfectly, then God would have led him into eternal life, right? But because he disobeyed, right, he did not gain access to the tree of life. So, 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 so it is grace for us, but it is still work for someone. 
and that one is, yes, sir. Yes, sir. In two minutes, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think it has to do with the decrees of God, right? So I do believe that God decreed the fall. And so I do, I do believe that on the, on the basis of the covenant of redemption that God had decreed that his kingdom would be realized through his son and not through Adam 1, we could say. Adam 1, Adam 2. And so that's where my epistemological meltdown usually takes place. Where I just, I can't think anymore. <laughs> I, just, I just, I think that's what it is. And as far as I go, you want to go further, go for it. You know I'm just saying, man, it's, you get into, you just get into regions of theology that you, where, at, at what point does it become unhealthy speculation? You know what I mean? I just know that Christ, who was according to what is it, First Peter chapter 1, I think it's verse 19 or 20, he was foreknown for the foundation of the world. So I think there you have a case for God eternally decreeing that redemption take place through the Son and that God's kingdom would be realized through his Son, not through Adam 1. So Adam 1, in a sense, showed us what was potential for man without realizing that potential. And he introduces, going back, and, and what, what it does do, though, is it introduces the principle of works. So, so, so even from, you know, think about that. Think about how covenantal, you want to talk about how covenantal the prologue is. The prologue is responsible for introducing us to one of the biggest theological realities in all of Scripture. Right? Right? So, law under the covenant of works, grace, or gospel under the covenant of grace. Already right there in the Genesis prologue. And the rest of the Bible is hardwired to think law and gospel, law and gospel. The law is first, not the gospel, contrary to New Covenant theology, John Piper, Fred Zaspel, people like that. That's why we. I came here today thinking, man. Because I think Trisha was playing some of that MacArthur sermon. I'm thinking like, man, so many views on this stuff. All these people disagree. And it's just like just when you think you got some continuity, you know, you go hang out with the Reformed Baptist guys and they disagree on stuff. It's like, oh, forget it. I'm just going to teach what I'm going to teach. <laughs> you know, and hopefully, hopefully what I try to do, is I try to stay safe. I try not to get into too much uh, what I think would be speculative um, even though some of it is, you know, it's always going to be, you know, up for debate. But I think the big things all covenantalists agree on, you guys, there is a covenant of redemption, there is a covenant of works, a covenant of grace, and there is an eternal covenant called the new covenant that ties it all together in Christ. We all agree on that. So we can squabble about all the little things, you know. Okay, let's go before we squabble about what time it is. <laughs>